All right, do I need to tell you to grab your Bibles and turn to the book of James, James chapter five. We have three weeks left in our James series. Hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. We're gonna take a week off for Thanksgiving, do a standalone message there, and then uh, begin our Christmas series. Can you believe Christmas is almost here? Anybody started listening to Christmas music already? The rest of you are Scrooges, all right? It's time, it starts for our family. The day after Halloween, we start listening to Christmas. And uh, I am getting into it, and I've already started sending Brent Dyer some songs that we're gonna be doing this Christmas. And uh, I'm rocking out to him in my car. I really have uh, enjoyed uh, preaching through James. And uh, I think that I have enjoyed it so much simply because it's a letter written by a pastor Uh, to his congregation. I've mentioned before uh, my love for pastors and preachers. It started as a young boy. I don't know why, but just a young man. I I love church. I love listening to preachers. I still can't believe uh, that God allows me to do this as a job. And I put it in air quotes because uh, I I, I don't feel like I've worked a day in my life uh, serving as a pastor. Now, don't get me wrong. There's some hard days, okay? Corralling sheep isn't as easy as it might seem. Uh, But uh, through the study of message prep and uh, just getting to know you and serve you, I was with a group of pastors, as I mentioned uh, earlier, just encouraging them, and I was challenging them to remember when God called them to ministry. God called me as a 17-year-old boy uh, to preach and teach his word, and truly, I I feel like uh, I am living a dream. I pray every day. When I pull onto the campus of Champion Forest, I'm not kidding you, this is my prayer. God, please don't let me mess this up. If you wanna know how to pray for me, uh, you pray for me that prayer right there, that I'd remain pure, uh, that I would remain faithful, uh, that I would stay on mission, uh, because I'm just uh, uh, delighted uh, to be able to serve as your pastor and just feel so uh, very honored uh, to be here. And I, again, just in reflecting upon this book, I think this is one of the reasons that I've liked James so much is because he's writing to a people that he loves. And while he shares uh, words of encouragement and affirmation with them, he also shares some stern words as well. And I think that's important because Uh, Even in sharing the stern words, we see that James loves his people. And my role as a pastor is uh, to be faithful to the text, and that means that I'm to be faithful to the Lord even when hard truths need to be shared. And I have an obligation to not only preach the text, but to the best of my ability through prayer and discernment, being led by the Spirit of God, communicate the tone in which I believe James is also writing in this letter. Because he loves them, uh, he doesn't hold anything back. He speaks the truth, even when it's hard, even when it's not something that's going to bring about warm fuzzies. It's kind of like going to the dentist, all right? Nobody likes going to the dentist. No offense to my dentist friends out there, okay? One person does, that's my wife. She enjoys the dentist, pray for her, okay? By the way, speaking of my wife, this week we celebrated 21 years of marriage this week, so pray for her, all right? She's got her hands full. That's a big deal, Debbie. That applause is for you. Uh, But, you know, 
the dentist, they open up your mouth and they start scraping around in there. They climb in there, making your gums bleed and all that. But when, when they're done doing their work, you appreciate it, okay? And so today, that's kind of this text. Pastor James, he's about to scrape, all right? And it might cause some bleeding, but I think by the time we're done, we're, we'll appreciate it. I'm calling the message today, A Warning to the Wealthy. Now, as we have noted throughout this book, James, on two different occasions, this is the third occasion that he has gone after those that we would, he would consider wealthy in this world. And we've noted on multiple occasions that uh, the wealthy of this world includes me and you. Okay, we're in this group. We are the wealthy. Just a little perspective to get you going here. You don't need to feel bad about this. I'm just giving it to you as a subtle reminder. But if you make $32,400 a year, you are in the richest 1% of the world. You're a one percenter, okay? In this context, the rich refers to those that had clothing on their back. That's all of us. And some of us have closets full of clothes, right? That we hadn't, we hadn't worn in ages, but we're saving them for that time that we can fit in them again, all right? Keep at it, I believe in you. Uh, the rich refers to those that own land or own their homes. So if you own a home, uh, it refers to those that could afford to eat however they chose to. I mean, they had the luxury of dining out if you will. They could afford to eat out. That was the rich. I, I say this to say, I think sometimes when we read the scripture and it talks about warnings to the wealth that we think, oh, that's to the Elon Musk of the world. Well, newsflash, we are the Elon Musk of the world. So this text is directed to every single person in the room, every single person watching online, myself included. When we read this passage here in just a minute, James chapter five, verses one through six, we would call this in preaching school, we need to use the prophetic you, okay? So if you read this and you think, boy, I sure wish so-and-so was here to hear this. You are the so-and-so, okay? I am the so-and-so. So here it goes, James chapter five, starting in verse one, the Bible says this, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, a lot of ink has been spilt by commentators questioning whether this passage is directed toward believers or unbelievers. And while I'm grateful for the work of commentators, those who study inside and out, know the original languages, get into the context of the day, they have way too much time on their hands, okay? Because it's really pretty easy. First of all, this text is talking to both. James, in the flow of this letter, if you remember from a few weeks back, we were in James chapter four, it goes before James chapter five, see how we do that? 
and he was confronting Christian businessmen, people who had means that they could make plans, and he was on them because they were making plans but not including God in their plans. And so he rebukes them. And in the this, in, in this same flow, it's in the same context that James chapter five flows. So it's logical that he is speaking to Christians. However, most of James' audience were very poor. And we'll talk about this at the very end of the message today. Most of them were part of the have-nots of the world, and they were being taken advantage of by the wealthy. Like chapter 2, uh, James is calling out the rich who are oppressing the poor. And so, bottom line, as we read this, this text fits believers and unbelievers. Now, James... If we narrow down to its root, what he's getting after here, there is an attitude problem. And it's an attitude problem as it relates to money and to people. James is gonna diagnose the spiritual problem here and he's gonna say, you rich, you wealthy, you have a wrong attitude toward money and you have a wrong attitude toward people. And this is important, just write this down. If money ever becomes your God, little g, there's a lot wrapped in that because when you have money and resources and wealth, you have power, you have means. And if that ever becomes your God, then inevitably you will begin to see those made in the image of the real God in an improper and inhumane way. And this is the warning. And so the question is, what is your attitude toward money? Where is your heart as it relates to your wealth, your money, your possessions. It's not wrong to have it. As mentioned, all of us in this room are extremely wealthy. The question is, what is our posture toward our wealth? The question is, do we have wealth and riches or do our wealth and riches have us? Now, don't answer this question on a whim, because if we answer it on a whim, all of us are going to say, hey, got this covered, got it under control, my money doesn't have me, I have my money. Well, James, through this passage of Scripture, is going to reveal two major ways that we can objectively determine how to answer this question. Do we have a wrong attitude toward money? Does our wealth have an unhealthy hold on our Heart. Two ways we can determine this. The first one is this, short-sighted living. Here's what I mean by this. Are you living like this is all there is to it? Like today, like what you can see and what you can touch and what you can feel and what you can experience. James is gonna indicate here, if you live in this way, it's short-sighted living, and it's an indication that your wealth and your riches have an unhealthy hold on your heart. And this is why it calls them to repent in verse one. Do you see it there? James chapter five, verse one. Come now, you rich, weep and howl. These are terms of repentance. It means to, to sob bitterly for the miseries that are coming upon you. Now, James, as he's writing, this is one of the reasons I believe that this is to believers. Uh, because he's, he's writing here and he's using language that Jewish 
followers of Christ would have been very familiar with. He's using picturesque language that the prophets of the Old Testament would have used. Many times when judgment was coming upon a nation, God was gonna judge a nation, or he was going to judge Israel, he would send one of his prophets to demand repentance in this language of weeping and wailing and lamenting and mourning and being broken over your sin and rebellion against God. It's language that the prophets use. Let me give you two examples. Isaiah chapter 13, verse six. This is a prophecy toward Babylon. God was getting ready to bring judgment upon Babylon. Babylon. Listen to what the scripture says, Isaiah, wail, for the day of the Lord is near. Judgment is coming. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. And so he's saying, judgment's coming. Day of the Lord is nearing. You need to repent. Let me give you another one, Jeremiah chapter 4. This is Jeremiah's words spoken to Israel. Assyria was about to come down from the north. It was going to capture them. And listen to what Jeremiah says, chapter four, verse eight. For this put on sackcloth, lament, and wail. Same terminology here. For the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. God, through the prophets, warned over and over and over again that judgment was coming. And the proper response was to repent. Weep, wail, sob bitterly. Be broken over the condition of your nation, over your own heart. And yet people were just going along, living their lives like everything was all good. And yet the prophets were painting a very different picture. Judgment is coming. And what James is doing is using language that would try to shock them into reality. Here they were eating and drinking and being merry, making plans, going about like everything was all good. But they were living short-sighted. Living for the moment. And they either forgot the prophet's warning, neglected the prophet's warning, rejected it, ignored it. They just didn't believe that miseries were coming upon them. And this word miseries here, it means hardship, it means suffering, it means distress. And by the way, the book of James was written about 45 AD. And you know what happened 25 or 30 years later after James writes this? Titus, the Roman uh, 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 general, comes in, he sacks Jerusalem. And miseries that James is speaking of here, that's exactly what takes place. But instead of the people being ready, instead of them being prepared, look at what they were doing. Look at the second part of verse three, James chapter five. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Short-sighted. James says you're living in the last days and yet you're not living like it's the last days. 
He says, you're laying up. It's literally where we get the word the source, which means a collection. He says, you're just collecting treasures for yourself. And for what reason? Why are you storing them away? You're in the last days. Now, theologically, this is very important to understand here that we are living in the last days. And the last days, the prophetic clock started ticking on the last days at the ascension of Jesus and at the sending of the Holy Spirit. Do you remember when this took place? Acts chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is with his disciples on the Mount of Olives, and he gives them this final commission that they're to be his witnesses, and the Bible says that Jesus is lifted up right before their very eyes. Let me just read it to you so you don't think I'm making it up. Acts chapter 1. Look at verse 9 through 11. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they're gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood beside them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. So this is, a, this is a doctrine that we believe as followers of Jesus, that just as Jesus ascended physically, visibly, literally, the Bible promises that Jesus is going to come again, visibly, physically, literally. We are going to see it, the Bible says. Every eye will see it. And so the disciples, they do exactly what Jesus tells them to do. They go back to Jerusalem. They get in an upper room. They're all together in one room. They're praying, and God sends the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes at the festival of Pentecost, there are thousands of believers who have come from all over the world, or th- thousands of Jewish people who have come from all over the world, and they begin, because the Spirit comes upon these disciples, the disciples are preaching in languages that all these thousands of people can hear. And the Bible says that that day, about 3,000 people came to know the Lord. That's a big day in the church. Unbelievable. And Peter when he stands up to preach, because people are watching what's going on, they're hearing these, these untrained, unskilled men speaking in languages that they don't know, speaking in tongues, and they're seeing this commotion. They're like, what's going on? Peter stands up and he preaches. And he says, listen, this is a fulfillment. The prophet Joel told us, Acts chapter two, verse 17, and in the last days, this is what it's gonna be like. God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters. They shall prophesy. Peter's saying, this is what's happening. The last days has started with the ascension of Jesus in the sending of the spirit. For 2,000 years, we have been living in the last days. Days. Now, I want you to remember what the scripture says about these last days. Second Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8, listen to what the Bible says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. So I want you to think about this. The last day started 2,000 years ago, but in God's view... He's been gone for a little over 48 hours, right? He's just been gone for a long weekend. He could be coming back this afternoon. What's he waiting on? Verse nine and 10. 
The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. For the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away. What, what is God waiting on? He's waiting on some of you to come to repentance so that you don't perish, so that you don't die in your sins. God is being patient with us, but he could come at any moment. There's been a lot of talk with what's going on over in the Middle East in Israel. Is this the last days? Are we living in the last days? Well, as I mentioned, yes. We've been living in the last days for 2,000 years. Now, it's interesting to watch all of the nations at play as it relates to the end of times the Bible prophesies about, they're all in the picture here. Turkey and Russia and Iran. It's all mixing in together. It's, it's, it's something else to watch. But regardless of that, regardless of what's taking place in the Middle East, we don't know when Jesus is coming. Nobody knows the day or the hour. But we've been in the last days for 2,000 years. And we're closer to it today than we ever have been. We better be ready. This means we don't live short-sighted. We don't just live for the here and the now because if you live to be 120 years old as compared to eternity, blimp on the radar. Doesn't even register when you count it against eternity. There's a second way James says, you wanna know whether your wealth's got a hold on you or not? an unhealthy hold. He says, not only short-sighted living, but self-indulgent living. This is another way to determine what your attitude, what the posture of your heart is toward wealth and riches. Are you living in a self-indulgent kind of way? If so, you're missing the mark. And your wealth has you instead of the other way around. Just look at the person that James is describing. I mean, this person... As you look at the text, has an insatiable thirst, never satisfied, never wants to let go of anything. The NIV translates this phrase in verse three, you have laid up treasure, if you have the NIV, you have hoarded wealth. He says, you're a hoarder. You ever see that show? It was really popular a couple years ago, Hoarders. I mean, people can't let go of anything. I mean, Grocery bags from the store they can't let go of. Every one of these hoarders, too, you watch them, they all had cats. Every one of them. I don't know what it, I don't know what it is, but if you own a cat, chances are very high. For, probability of you being a hoarder goes dramatically up. <laughs> James says, this is some of you. You're hoarding your wealth. It can be seen in the fact that you don't give. And I'm not talking about giving to the church. I'm talking about giving at all. Look at verse four. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. Some of these wealthy landowners, they weren't paying the wages of their employees who were working for them. And in the tense of the original language, they weren't even planning on it. I mean, they, they, they went out to cheat these people. Not giving them what they rightly earn, not giving them what they rightly deserve. You see what happens when you make money an idol? I promise you, you let the money become an idol in your life. You let your possessions, your wealth, 
grab hold of your heart, I promise you, you will treat those made in the image of the real God in an inhumane way. You'll start devaluing people. That's why a right attitude toward wealth and possessions is so very important because it's linked to how we view those made in the image of God. By the end of this passage, verse six, James is talking about how we condemn and murder. What he's saying is, this this is our life. When we're only out for self, we're looking out for me and mine, man, we'll, we'll murder to do that. We'll condemn the righteous as long as nothing from mine is taken. As long as I get a hold of what is mine. Now, we may not be guilty of the corruption in the sense that James mentions here withholding wages from someone. If you're an employer, you may. And you need to do an honest assessment of your business. And are you paying those that are working for you what they're worth? God takes this serious. We'll see that in just a minute. We may not be guilty of this corruption, but let's talk about not giving. Let's talk about not letting go. Let's talk about cheating. I just wrote some of these down in my notes this week and I had to go through them myself, just so you know. Just how many of us are guilty of not tipping those that wait on us in the right way? It doesn't matter. Their service was bad. That doesn't matter for the Christian. How many of us are guilty of sharing our Netflix or streaming accounts? with more people than we're supposed to? How many of us are guilty of asking for water at the restaurant only to fill that cup up with a soft drink when nobody's looking? How many of us cheat our employers by taking long lunches? Cheat our government by not being honest as it relates to our taxes? Cheat God by not giving him anything. I'm here, so I might as well go all in. And again, I'm, I'm prayerfully trying to get right, not just the content, but the spirit in which James is communicating to his congregation, but this is, this is true. Let's, let's just use the prophetic you. There are some, you need to weep and well and mourn and repent because you're not even tipping God. Listen, it's not about God needing your money. It's not about the church needing your money. What I'm getting at here is that your giving or your lack thereof is a reflection of what is in your heart and it is a reflection of what your priorities for. You can't get away from this. I can't get away from this. It is a fact of life. Jesus said it like this. These are in the red words. Matthew chapter six, verse 19 through 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Don't store it up. Don't collect it. Where moss and vermin, worms, destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moss and vermin and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I mean, some of us in here, we're giving to something, all right? We're giving to someone. What James is rebuking here are those that are only giving to themselves. The priority is you. And you can see it in the way that you spend. You can see it in your debt. 
And I'm telling you, if the Holy Spirit of God is speaking to you right now, you better thank God that he is because the Bible says today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. This week, when it got real cold early in the week, I went out to my car to start up. Every warning light on started going off, showing me my tires are low. I gotta go put air in my tires. What was happening? It was saying something's off. Some of you, this message, the warning lights are going off. What we're talking about today, it's a stern warning. James chapter five, verse five, you have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. Just more prophetic imagery here. It's a picture of a beast, a pig, a calf, just eating and eating and eating and eating and eating. No self-control whatsoever, having no idea that it's being fattened up for the day of slaughter. Again, just more prophetic imagery here. Amos, in the Old Testament, you need to read these minor prophets, Amos, Malachi, Micah. You know why? Because you're gonna see them in heaven and they're gonna say, what do you think about my book, all right? And you don't wanna look at them with dumb face, all right? <laughs> Amos, he was prophesying to Israel at a time when everything was cush, man. Israel was at ease. They were comfortable. Man, they were living it up. They were living the high life. They were, talk about short-sighted and self-indulgent, man, throwing parties, revelry. It was, it was awesome time for them. And Amos, he speaks prophecy over them. Listen to this, Amos chapter six, verse one, the first part. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. I mean, we could, we could put it in our vernacular. Woe to those who are at ease in Northwest Houston. And to those who feel secure, well, there ain't no mountains around here, but to those who feel secure in the humidity of Houston, okay? Look at verse four. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches, got media rooms, three-car garages, and you eat the lambs from the flock and the calves from the midst of the stall. You dine it up at Perry's every chance you get. You sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David, invent for themselves instruments of music. You got so much leisure time on your hands, you invent things to do. I mean, you can just scroll on social media all day long. You drink wine in bowls, no self-control at all. You anoint yourself with the finest of oils, but you're not grieved at the ruin of Joseph. The sin going on around you doesn't catch your attention. He says, therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, we'll see that term in just a minute, I abhor the pride of Jacob, I hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. Here we see that pride is the root of all sin, and when it comes to our money and our possessions and wealth issues, what is the root? It's pride. And in just 20 years, just 20 years, this prophecy that Amos gave Israel came true. Israel came from, uh, Assyria came from the north, sacked them, took their inhabitants into captivity, judged them. Jim Samra wrote in his commentary these words. These, these are striking words. I had to include them today. You think that you have provided for yourself a comfortable lifestyle that is free from trouble, but you are actually earnestly begging for trouble. 
You have chosen the path that puts you directly into the line of God's fire. God is preparing to hand out judgment and you are jumping up and down yelling, pick me, pick me. The people in Amos' day, they thought their wealth, this is scary, this is scary. They thought their wealth was a blessing from God. And it was actually a curse because it lulled them to spiritual apathy. And even his prophetic words of waking up, waking up, waking up didn't cause them to get their act together. They live short-sighted. They live self-indulgent. Their hearts were hardened. This is what sin does. Hardens our heart, makes us stupid. We don't see straight. Sin is a form of spiritual dementia. We forget the faithfulness of God. We forget the goodness of God. We forget the warnings of God. So what's the answer? Because we're all prone to forgetting. We're all prone to to walk out of here and, 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 and just neglect this message that God the Spirit wants to hit on all of our hearts. What are, what are we to do? Well, we're to do exactly what James tells us here, and that's repent. Weep, well, mourn, be broken by our own sin. Be broken by the fact that we're not shocked by what's going on around us. Be broken by the fact that there's not an urgency in these last days. Repent. Now, repent is threefold. Repent, number one, involves a change of mind. Uh, When it comes to the way that we think about our money and possessions, we need a change of mind. We need to stop thinking, okay, I'm gonna save or I'm gonna spend, no, no, I'm gonna give, no. We need to start thinking about this word, stewardship. A steward is someone who is entrusted with someone else's stuff and they're responsible for managing it and they will be held accountable for it. And you do realize that's every single one of us in the room. God has given us talents and abilities, education, family, relationships, jobs, callings. Those are, that's, a, that's a stewardship on our life. Those are all God's. He gave us everything. And so the question is, how are we stewarding these things? Because we're going to give an account. They're his. Um, we all want to hear the words, well done, thy good and faithful servant, don't we? But you do know that came on the parable in Matthew chapter 25 of being a steward. The person that heard, well done, thy good and faithful servant, is the person who was given resources and stewarded them wisely. So when the owner came back, the owner says, well done, thy good and faithful servant. If you want to hear that, you better begin stewarding wisely what God has entrusted to you. Unless you think money, possessions isn't important to Jesus, we're talking about parables here, 40% of the parables that Jesus gives have to do with our wealth. What do we do with it? And so we need a change of mind as it relates to how we interact in this materialistic world that we're in. This is a danger to all of us. This is why we gotta come before the Lord, Romans chapter 12, verse one, and we've gotta appeal by the mercies of God to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We've gotta be able to think accurately about what God has entrusted to us so that we're wise so important. Repentance involves a change of mind. Where they've got to get in God's word every day. 
Because I'm telling you, this world will try to fit us into its mold. And it's a, it's a dangerous place to be. And the only way we combat it is going, God, I need your word. I need to think biblically about these things. I need to have a biblical worldview concerning my money and my possessions. There could not be a greater difference between how the world thinks about this and how God thinks about this. And so we need the mind of Christ. Repentance involves a change of mind. It also involves a change of heart. These are interconnected, yes, your mind and your heart. But listen, I need God to not only change the way I think about these things, I need God to change the way that I feel about these things. Did you notice the Bible says where your treasure is? Jesus said where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's not your, where your heart is, your treasure will be. If you're waiting on your heart to get in the giving game, you're never gonna feel like it, ever. Because the natural feelings of the flesh is more for me. I can't let go of that. So what we do is we begin to give we put our treasure in the eternal, not the short-sighted, but the eternal. We play the long game, and as a result, the Bible says our feelings will follow. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, okay? A lot different Methodist movement than it is today. But John Wesley, he said this. He, he, he knew that the love of the world and the things for the world could squeeze spiritual life and vigor out of him, and that envy and greed could well up. Listen to what he said. He, he had this motto, make all you can, save all you can, give all you can. He made a key decision early on in his life. His royalties, in that day, it was the equivalent of making about $120,000 a year. And you know what he lived off of? 20,000. Every time he got a raise, he would live off the same thing. And here's what he said. What should rise is not the Christian standard of living, but the Christian standard of giving. He said this, money never stays with me, it would burn me if it did. i throw it out of my hands as soon as possible lest it should find its way to my heart. He said, it's not how much of money I will give to God, it's how much of God's money I will keep for myself. He said, I saw that giving even all of my life to God, supposing it possible to do this and go no further, would profit me nothing unless I gave my heart, yea, all of my heart to him. God owned his heart. That's what it's all about, it's about the posture of our hearts. Repentance involves a change of mind, a change of heart. Lastly, it involves a change of the will. True, true repentance. Well, you've heard it, right? You're walking one way and you U-turn. It's a volitional decision. I was going this way and now I'm going to go this way. And when we have a change of the will, true repentance, we're making volitional decisions, volitional choices that may cost us, but we don't care because we're following the Lord. Eyes are on the Lord. Zacchaeus, remember him? We little man? We little man was he? Jesus calls him. He was a tax collector. He was cheating people, defrauding people all the time. Jesus spends one dinner with him. And listen to what Luke tells, tells us. Luke chapter nine, verse eight. Zacchaeus stood after one dinner with Jesus, seeing his love, his mercy, his forgiveness. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Jesus didn't tell him to do that. What did he do? He made a volitional decision because God had changed his heart. He had experienced the love of Jesus. He repented, and his repentance was shown in the decision that he made. All that mattered to him was pleasing Jesus. And this is true repentance. And so where do you need to repent today? Change of the mind, a change of the heart, a change of the will. Some of you need to go home, and your repentance needs to be plastic surgery. You know what I mean by that? Take those credit cards and cut them up because it's the only way you're gonna get out of debt. Others of you, you need to make the volitional decision, you know what, I'm gonna start giving. 
You know, it's true in organizations, it's true in the church. 20% of the people do 80% of the work. It's true in this church. 20% of the people give 80% of the budget. Shouldn't be that way. Not with Christians. And if you can't tithe, you can't give 10%, you're not in a place to do that. A volitional decision, a moment of repentance for you may just need to be, you know what, I'm gonna start somewhere, I'm gonna start at 2% and just see what God does. I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna go online so it comes out of my paycheck because I want it to come out of the first. I'm gonna sign up for recurring giving. Some of you gotta make that volitional decision. Some of you, it's just confession. This morning in my time alone with the Lord was Psalm 32. You know what the Bible says? That when we don't confess our sins, the psalmist said, man, my strength was dried up as in the heat of the summer, God's hand was heavy upon me. There are some of us that have no spiritual strength right now because we hadn't confessed sin in a long time. And maybe we need to get in a room with God and say, God, I confess my short-sighted living. I confess my self-indulgent living. And I confess it in this way. This is what I've been doing. And you watch times of refreshing come in. This is a warning to the wealthy. Now, one minute and I'm out of here, okay? I didn't preach the last two weeks. All right, give me a little grace. Here we go. One minute. Two minutes. One minute and a half. Um, I said it's written to believers and unbelievers. Much of James audience was poor. They were the ones that were being taken advantage of. They were the ones being defrauded. And there are some of you in here, that's your position. Your employer's cheating you, defrauding you, you're being taken advantage of, and here's how I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to stop complaining to other people. You don't even have to file anything with your HR department. Here's what I want to encourage you to do. Take it to God in prayer. I'm serious. You see that verse? James chapter five, verse four, the second part? The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. That Lord of hosts, that's the Lord of angel armies. You've got the God of angel armies on your side. And if you're being taken advantage of, you take that to God and you say, God, this is what my employer's doing to me. As a child of God, this is, what, this is what he's doing. And I promise you, the God of angel armies, he knows, he sees, he will hear your cries, and he will do something about it. You better believe it. And so you cry out to God. That's why this whole passage is a warning to the wealthy. Amen? Thank you for joining us online. We hope today's experience encouraged and challenged you. At Champion Forest, we are passionate about all kinds of people coming to know God, to grow in their relationship with Him and others, and then to go out and make a difference in the world. We would love the opportunity to talk and pray with you. To connect with us, just go to championforest.org connect. And hey, of course, we can't wait to welcome you on campus, in person, on one of our locations. We'll see you soon.